Grace, mercy, and peace to you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Why do babies cry? Like I said, we just had our very first baby girl, and so naturally, most of what I've been thinking about has been babies, how to take care of them, what I can possibly do as a floundering dad who doesn't know anything. But usually the question I have is, why is Rose crying? And those of you who have spent any time taking care of babies, there's really only a handful of answers. It could be that Rose is hungry. That's a job for mom. It could be that Rose is tired. That's probably the toughest one because she's tired, but you wouldn't know it because when you try to get her to sleep, that, that is a challenge, I tell you. And then it could be that she needs a diaper changed, and that is my strong suit. That I can do. I've gotten good at that, and you know that's where I can step in and, and be a good dad. But really, all of those things, whether it's hunger, tiredness, needing a change, being uncomfortable, or just wanting to be held by her mom, all of those things, at the heart of it is she wants something that she can't attain on her own. She wants what she can't have. And as I read through James chapter 4 that Allison so wonderfully read for us today, it made me think a lot about how we never really lose that desire for what we can't have even into adulthood. As kids grow older, they become a little bit more vocal about what they want. And even into adulthood, some of our behavior turns sour. Hopefully, you're not crying when you don't get lunch. Um, if you are, I'm sorry. Must be really hungry. But when we get hungry, when we get tired, when there's something we want in life, in a relationship, from our job, when there's something we want that we can't obtain or that God hasn't given to us, we get nasty. We get angry. We say unkind things. Our actions are hurtful. And James correctly diagnoses that this is what causes conflict in our relationships with one another and in our relationship with God. He says in verse 2, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, that's pretty extreme. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, I don't think that Rose, when she's crying, is having murderous thoughts. And I doubt that many of you would kill just to have lunch. Um, don't quote me on that. But he's, he's using this exaggerated statement to show that our selfish motivation is the cause of some pretty destructive behavior. And thankfully, he doesn't just leave us with the problem, but he gives us the solution. The solution for our selfishness is faith in Christ's selflessness. And we're going to unpack that as we look through this passage of James. The first half of the passage, verses 1 through 5, James is really talking about what the problem is and the destruction that results from it. He starts off in verse 1 saying, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, 
that your passions are at war within you. The cause of quarrels and fights is your passions, your desires. And he says that they are at war within us. So right away, when we hear within us, we know that this is a heart issue. This isn't just about our actions and how they affect other people, but it starts inside us, in our hearts. It's a desire for what we do not have or what we're not getting. And that leads us to all those destructive behaviors and words. And I want you to think, as I'm talking about this, about the conflicts in your own life. Because James was speaking to specific conflicts. When we read James, we're reading a letter from him to churches all spread out, the very first Christians, and they're, as you've seen if you've been listening the past few weeks, they're dealing with all sorts of different problems. And this particular problem that James is confronting them about is conflict. That doesn't make sense, right? Because these are Christians. They're supposed to love each other. There shouldn't be any reason for conflict. And I know in my 18 years as a member here at St. Peter, there was never any conflict between members. And I'm sure there hasn't been any since I left. We know that's not true, right? We see conflict in the outside world. We see wars. We even see it on social media. We see the political unrest in our own nation. We've seen throughout history people dying because of selfishness, greed, ultimately. And that same worldly selfishness, that same worldly, quarrelsome behavior creeps into the walls of our church, our Christian community. It creeps into our homes. It creeps into our relationships. And it may not lead to destruction or death or murder, as James so exaggeratedly puts it, but at the end of the day, it's a serious thing. Now, James might not have been actually talking about murder, but he's really following in the words of Christ. If we think of Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, Jesus' famous sermon, where Jesus said in verse 22, he said that the same judgment goes upon the people who are angry as the judgment for people who murder. He says, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus cast the same judgment on hatred and unkindness as for murder. And you might just think, oh, he's exaggerating, it's not that serious. But think about the conflicts that you've had with people maybe in the pew next to you, the conflicts that you've had with other people at this church. Think about the people that you maybe don't see here at church anymore. Maybe it's because of COVID, but maybe it's because of something that you disagreed with them about. Or maybe there have been times where you've stayed home because you can't bear facing that person, you know, that person at church. That causes serious and possibly lasting damage to your relationship with God. 
we all know that there are people who have left the church and never come back. Maybe a lot of that is due to their own selfishness, but we can't ignore the fact that people inside the church can mistreat each other. And that mistreatment that goes against God's whole message can leave them feeling estranged and disconnected from God. So these temporary conflicts that we might think aren't a big deal or that we can maybe joke about or laugh about, they can have lasting impact that separates us from God. And that's exactly the point that James makes as he moves on into verses 4 and 5. And he really calls the people out and he calls us out. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, we said that selfish ambition, selfishness, and those worldly pursuits, that's the way of the world. The world is stab anybody in the back, push anybody aside just to get ahead. But when that enters into our own lives, when we take on the ways of the world, when we become friends with the world, or this word for friendship really can be used for love. It's not just, oh, you know, your, your pal. No, this is somebody that you love, that you're attached to. When we attach ourselves to the world, we make God our enemy. And that comes from the conflict that we, that we contribute to in our relationships. When we make other people our enemy, the people we're supposed to love, we make God our enemy as well. But we also oppose God and find conflict with God in other ways as well. When we are ungrateful or impatient for what we ask of God. Verse 3 actually mentions that when James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Sometimes when we look back on our prayers, we see that all we were doing was asking and asking and asking. And it is good to ask God for whatever it is that you need. But at times, I think we can find ourselves asking with the wrong intentions. When we're motivated by our passions, by what our wants are, and not what God wants for us, what's truly best for us. And we get so focused on the things that God hasn't delivered us, or the prayers he said no to, or the prayers that he's taking so long to answer that we lose sight of the blessings that he's already given us. That selfishness puts us at odds with God. And even more so, we align ourselves and we become friends with the world. We show our love of the world when we chase after the things that God forbids us to do. Just like that analogy I was talking about earlier with our daughter, she wanted something so badly that it brought her to tears. As kids get older, they, they may kick and scream and say terrible things to get what they want or even get the idea that, well, I can just take this without asking. We are tempted and brought to the point of being separated from God when we put those desires and the things that we want ahead of him. And James references that in verse 5. And he also references 
the consequence of that action and of that selfishness. And you almost miss it if you don't look at it closely. He says, or, you dis, or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And when we see at any point in the Bible a writer saying, you know this from scripture, we should probably ask and try and figure out where it comes from in scripture. And you might recognize the idea of God being a jealous God. And that's actually one of the most quoted parts of Scripture. Scripture quotes itself a lot and references back to itself. And the most mentioned passage in the Bible is actually what James is talking about here. It comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. And if those of you really know your Bible, you know that Exodus chapter 20 is where we get the Ten Commandments. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd say that's a pretty important part of the Bible. That's a pretty foundational part of our faith, the summary of God's law and what he wants us to do, the things that we fail at day in and day out. And in the midst of that, right after God talks about how we shall have no other gods, he says this, You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God is a jealous God. And not jealous in the way that we are. It's not this kind of petty jealousness where we, we just get upset because we're not being treated rightly. No, God is a jealous God because we have been adulterous, like James calls us. We've been adulterous people because God has been faithful to us since eternity. He has never left us, never abandoned us, never forsaken us. And we, time and time again, turn away from him and chase after whatever vice comes in our way in the world. And the result is punishment. Or as James calls it later in verse 12, destruction. He says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. We talk a lot about God's saving grace, and I'm about to get to that, but we can't forget the destruction that comes to those who make themselves enemies of God. And that's what James is calling out these early Christians, and that's what he's calling out about us, is when we make ourselves God's enemy. And this is a really bleak picture that James has painted. I'm guessing that the people who were reading this part of the letter were not feeling too great about themselves. When I read it, I didn't feel that great about the ways that I have failed God. But thankfully, we get this phrase in verse 6, but he gives more grace. It's the turning point in this part of the letter. But he gives more grace. And as you read on verses 6 through 10, the grace is kind of hard to catch because it, it doesn't sound as sweet and light and fluffy as we, we normally expect grace to sound. Like in that song that we sang earlier, it doesn't sound quite like, for God so loved the world that he sent his son to save us. But when you look at it closely, that's exactly what he's talking about. 
he's talking about grace in the form of humility. And whenever I think of humility in reference to the Bible, I think of Christ and his humility. But James is really talking about our own humility. And he compares humility to repentance. And as I read this, I realized that repentance or admitting that you're wrong is the most humble thing that you can do. Think about conflict that you've had or are having right now. What has been the most challenging part of resolving that conflict? It's saying, hey, this thing that I did was wrong. What I said was wrong. And the conflicts that never get resolved are the ones where neither side is willing to admit any wrongdoing. And I think when you think about those conflicts that you've had throughout the years, I know when I think about any conflict I've had, almost always there's some fault on both sides. Except in conflicts that I have with my wife, I'm the only one at fault in those conflicts. But more seriously, when you really think about it, if you really look back on your actions and your intentions when you're in a fight with somebody, I think that if you're honest with yourself, you can see that there was somewhere along the way that you responded poorly or you acted poorly or you contributed to that conflict. But the conflict that we have with God is different. It is completely different. Because like in those conflicts, when there needs to be humility and humble repentance on either side for it to be reconciled, and when there's fault on both sides, that's not how it is with God. Like I said, he has been faithful to us for our entire lives since before we were even born. We are the ones who have turned our backs on him. And even still, he holds out his hand to us. And still, even though he did nothing wrong, he's the first one to humble himself. He's the one who humbled himself even unto death on the cross, sending his only son to die for the punishment, to take on that punishment that we deserve. It got me thinking about how easy it should be to humble ourselves in our conflict with God. Because we don't have to worry about the punishment. Admitting you're wrong is so hard to do, not just because you want to be right, but admitting you're wrong means you subject yourself to some kind of punishment or penalty for your wrongdoing. When I thought about that, it reminded me of only a few times at St. Peter when I was a student here where I made mistakes. Um, most of you know my mom worked here for 15 years, so I couldn't get away with very much um, because she was right down the hall. But I remember one specific instance where I was in Mr. Peel's eighth grade science class, and we were dissecting frogs. And I don't know if I was, I think I was trying to make some girls laugh, show off a little bit. I was making the frog dance around. I was playing around with the knife and just all around being a pretty terrible scientist. And instead of him giving my mom a call or walking down to my mom's office, he said, hey, Ted, I want you to walk to your mom's office and tell her about everything that you were just doing. 
and then come tell me what she says about it. And I'll ask her after the fact what, what you said to her and make sure that you got the story straight. And let me tell you, that was the longest walk to my mom's office that I think I've ever taken. Part of that was intentional. I was definitely walking slow because you know that feeling, that feeling when you've messed up and you need to admit to someone how you've messed up and just how wrong you've been because you don't want to let them down, but you also don't want to deal with the repercussions. But that's what should make humbling ourselves, being humble with God so easy because he has removed that punishment. Now, yes, there's still some consequences that we face right now, but he's removed that eternal punishment. That's why in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. When we humble ourselves, when we humbly say, God, I confess my sins. God, I am a miserable sinner. We get to hear those amazing words, you are forgiven. And not only are we forgiven, but we are promised a place in God's kingdom right next to Jesus. We're promised that we get to see our loved ones again, that we don't have to fear death because we have eternal life. And not only that, but since we've been given grace by God, since we've received that grace, that enables and encourages us to give it to others, even when maybe they don't deserve it. Since we've received that undeserved grace, we can give it and we should give it to others. And if there's two things I want you to remember from what I said today, the first is this, that the cure for our selfishness is Christ's selflessness. The cure for our selfishness is Christ's selflessness. Our faith in Christ's humility, his humbleness even to death, our faith in that humility is what enables us to overcome conflict. Christ's selflessness reconciles our relationship to God, and when we allow it to, it can reconcile our relationships with our fellow brothers and sisters. So that when we take communion, we're not only united with Christ in his body and blood, but we're united with all those whom we eat and drink with. Amen. And as, uh, as I head back to my seat, um, you can take a look at the questions, the here and practice questions for today, just some things to think about or maybe talk to the people next to you about. Um, we've talked throughout this series about hearing and practicing our faith. And the first one is, what worldly desire of yours has caused conflict between you and God lately? And the second is, again, to think about those past and present conflicts that you've had and how could you apply or could you have applied Christ's selfless attitude in order to bring peace to that situation? Thank you.